This is Profiles in Risk. Hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation. And those who work behind the scenes who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot com. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Profiles in Risk. I am your host, Nick Lamparelli. Today, I am joined by Joe Rossi. Joe is a flood specialist at Rogers and Gray Agency in New England, an independent consultant and chairman of the Marshfield Coastal Coalition. Joe, welcome to Profiles in Risk. Thank you, Nick, very much for having me. Joe, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is you have quite a bit of experience, especially uh, startup experience, building up the Marshfield Coastal Coalition. And I wanted to really explore for Profiles in Risk, get beyond the topic of just insurance and try to explore more of the insurance and societal impact of different organizations and how in combination they can make a better impact uh, in not only in business, but in society. So I wanted to throw this back over to you and start up by asking you, who is Joe Rossi? Give us a little bit of your background, and then I'd like to explore uh, some of the different things that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, as Joe Rossi, every single day, whether it's the weekday, workday, or the weekend, I am working on flood. I, I am known as Joe Flood in my office, and I'm also known as the Flood Man. So for me, my life is centered around flood issues. Um, and as you mentioned, a lot of them are insurance related, and some of them, or a lot of them are not. So for me, I sit on the National Flood Determination Association. That is the national board that deals with flood zone determinations. As you mentioned, I'm chair of the Marshfield Coastal Coalition. Uh, And outside of my professional occupation, I'm also coordinator of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, which is a regional group that's activated when we have regional issues that we need to work on. So I'm also a certified floodplain manager and have the designation of associate uh, in national flood. And most recently, uh, and actually right now, most importantly, I have been designated as the co-coordinator of the community rating system program for the town of Marshfield. So as you can see, um, there's not really a lot of time to do anything else other than flood. <laughs> so that's that's just a little bit about me, a little bit about, you know, kind of how it is to to some of the things I do and, and a little bit of my background. I I went to school, you know, this, this all started um, out of really not me getting involved directly with this issue. I went to school to be an architect. I have a degree in architecture from Wentworth Institute of Technology. And it was while I was in school, I was actually also very involved in local politics. And without going into the whole story, because I'm sure we'll dive into it throughout this, I was appointed to the Seawall Committee and it all kind of went from there. So let's see how we can connect flood insurance and these local types of organizations. Let's see how we can connect all of these because you have hands in a lot of areas. Okay, so you you have a degree in architecture. So it seems as though your first exposure to either flood or to insurance is something to do with a seawall. So I would like to explore that a little bit more. So that way the listeners can find out why you're actually called the flood man. (laughs) Sure. So... When I was in school, uh, I was, I believe I was a sophomore, that's, that's our uh, junior year, second semester sophomore year is what it was. Basically, I was involved in local politics in town, and I was asked to, uh, it happened to be, you know, my entire career built on timing, the timing of certain things. So in the summer of 2010, the Marshfield Seawall, for the first time in its 70 years, collapse. Part of it collapsed. We have three miles of seawall. It was about a thousand foot section that collapsed. What, what, so cost, this was what a big caused it to collapse? Uh, it was significant undermining from just a normal coastal storm. You know, these walls were built 
in the mid-30s out of concrete and literally beach stone. And in the communities in our area, the South Shore of Massachusetts, the houses sit, you know, five, ten feet away from the seawall. So when a seawall collapses, it begins to become a serious problem. And the even even though the maintenance of the seawall was what fell onto the DPW, the Department of Public Works, there was really a void or a gap in the day-to-day monitoring, community outreach, and special specialization of specifically seawalls. So the town formed the Marshfield Seawall Committee, and I worked with the you know selectmen at the time to actually figure out how the committee was going to work, how big the committee should be. Mind you, having no experience in coastal-specific issues, I was brought in more from being young and involved and, and having some type of degree in background and planning. So in the fall of 2010, the selectmen appointed me, along with several others, to the Marshfield Seawall Committee. And the funny thing is, having never served on the, in a public body of any type before, the board, who was made up of citizens from all credences, appointed me as chair of that committee. So here I am, walking into my first meeting of any public body. Now I'm chair, and there's a hundred people in the room looking at to me for the answer on what to do. And you're just a kid. A very, and I'm just a kid, 22 at the time of a very complex issue. You know, this was, this is not a put the wall back up and move on. You know, we're talking about, you know, climate change, sea levels rising, storms becoming worse. But in our area, the biggest problem was what the seawalls were doing to the beach, which was eroding it. So that started my real first dive into any coastal issue at all. Now the, the insurance part actually Comes much later. I was on the seawall committee from 2010, 11, and the very beginning of 2012. And the selectmen really just felt like the seawall committee was something that, since the major issues had started to go away, funding had started to become found, you know, the seawall committee had essentially fulfilled its goal. We were disbanded. And my connection, however, had really come in the form of informing and educating our citizens, since there were so many unknowns that they really didn't know and needed to know. So that began my, so in in February of 2012, when the Seawall Committee was disbanded, I started the Marshfield Coastal Coalition at the time without the citizens piece in it. And we we had several people from the Seawall Committee that stayed on. And, um, you know, there were three of us uh, that pretty much went through that year of 2012, kind of struggling and figuring out really where we were going to have our strongest impact. I, it was the fall of 2012, um, and, and as the listeners may or may not know, in July of 2012 was when the infamous Biggert Waters Act was passed. So this act totally changed the National Flood Insurance Program. You know, this was going to make program essentially unaffordable for homeowners. But we didn't know that, and very few people did. So in the fall of 2012, one of my now longest-serving committee members uh, walked into the room, woman uh, in her late, early 70s, um, who I didn't know at the time, had an envelope full of documents, and at the very beginning of our meeting, slammed it down on the table, and she said, this bill will kill affordability for homeowners in our flood zones. Now, I had no idea what she was talking about, but looking back five years later, she was absolutely right because what we found, there's very few people that don't know the story, uh, even outside of the scope of insurance, that the Bigger Waters Act ended up becoming an act that had to be rescinded for the most part because of how unaffordable it would become. Right. The act, the act essentially just uh, raised rates at a certain percentage each year. And so there were a lot of folks on in the coastal area that were getting uh, rate increases of, you know, 25% year over year over year. 
That's right. And it was elimination of grandfathering, you know, being able to benefit from those older rates. If you sold a home, you were immediately thrown into a new rate class that in some cases would be thousands and thousands of dollars more. So, you know, when, when, when this happens, this was truly my first kind of foray into insurance at all and still not really. Um, it's really been since that moment that we were not only thrown into the bigger waters discussion, but our communities here on the South shore of mass were also remapped. And, and you know, you can imagine these sales triggers going to the true rate of the building risk of the building at the same time that our base flood elevations or the elevation of the, the, the 1% flood were increasing by 70% on average. So you could have said, I guess the timing couldn't have been any better for us because once again, just like in late 2010, the town fathers, the you know people involved at the town um, really were at a loss for how to handle the outpouring of citizen concern. And, and, and Marshfield wasn't unique. You know, areas all over the country started realizing the immediate implications and had no idea how to handle it. And, you know, Doris, who was that woman that came into my meeting, um, little did I know she had 20 years, now 25 years of experience in the program, knew exactly what to do. Uh, and we are still to this day looked at as a now at the time a local group but now a national group on our expertise in pretty much all coastal issues. Yeah, what I'll what I'll do is in the show notes, I'll put some um, I'll put some information about Biggert Waters and some articles um, on, in there so that the audience, if they want to really understand what kind of effect that act had, uh, they can kind of see it uh, not only locally but but nationally. So. Uh, the Marshfield Coastal Coalition is now much bigger than the local. As you mentioned, it's now kind of a national organization. So what is what is your mission? What are you trying to do uh, with that particular group? Sure. So, you know, over the last um, five years, and we just celebrated our big five-year anniversary gala. We had a big gala earlier this year. Um, with with many people that attended. We had about 100 people in the room. Um, and it really was a great reflection. You know, it was a time to reflect. Not in my wildest dreams, when I sat there in early 2012 with a few citizens that were simp just complaining about things, you know, did I think that I would have a coalition that is nationally recognized with a board of directors that is... Um, you know, basically look to at the national level um, as, you know, really a, a group that is specializing in education and outreach, you know, because that's what we do. We specialize in, in doing education and outreach to communities and stakeholders and, and others. Um, and I'll actually um, pull up our um, mission statement because it recently changed, you know, and, and looking back, you know, the for the past uh, five years has been great. But looking forward, really looking forward to the next five years is even more exciting. In just this year, we've already done more than we did all of last year, and we're not even done with the year yet. So we're really excited with where things are going. But one of the big things that we did um, was we got serious about moving forward to be really solidify ourselves with a strong board of directors, which meant passing a new set of bylaws. So what these bylaws will eventually do is they have in them, uh, they, they outline the direction of the coalition for the foreseeable future. And one of the big things that the our, by, our new bylaws will do is set up a membership program where you can pay dues and get benefits back by being a dues-paying member. We estimate that in just the first three months of working on a membership program, we've already built out $150 in value that you'll get by becoming a member. So 
That alone is something we're very proud to start to get ready to roll out. Um, another thing that we're doing is developing some proprietary content. Um, we're working with uh, redoing our website. And of course, for free, without having to pay dues, we will continue to supply uh, our members uh, a bi-weekly um, or sometimes monthly newsletter about what's going on in the flood program. But very specifically, you know, we started, even during the years of the Seawall Committee, with being super focused on education and community outreach, making sure that the average citizen understood not just what was going on, but also understood the terminology surrounding it. So our mission, our actual mission, is to allow coastal community stakeholders in Marshfield, regionally and nationally, to have an active voice in coastal issues, along with educating and informing stakeholders on issues that affect them. That is, that is our actual mission statement. That's fantastic. And, and I want to emphasize it is national. So you started locally. Now you're, you're building this voice nationally. So I'm curious, the National Flood Program is set to expire next month in September. Um, so from, from your, I, I would like two perspectives here uh, from the Marshfield Coastal Coalition. Uh, what, what are you trying to do there? And then I think from your, your insurance background, what would you like to see done? So I hate to ask two questions there, but from, from, a, from an organizational standpoint, you know, societal, what would you like to see happen? And what do you think is the best thing that could happen on the insurance side? Well, you know, I'll tell you, you know, we have gone to a national level. Um, and, and I know this because I personally, for the last three years, have traveled the country, spoken at conferences, um, met with national organizations. Um, I sit on a couple national boards. I sit on a FEMA task force um, dealing with the consumer experience um, in the regards to the claims process. We are truly a national organization. Our documents, newspaper articles we've been quoted in um, have been sent all around the country uh, and have been used by, by organizations throughout the country. Um, so it's really been it's really been a great ride, you know, and we're only going further, you know, to really expand uh, our our national um, uh, outreach. Um, and so to that point, we have extreme deep involvement in the National Flood Insurance Program and specifically its reauthorization. So for those that don't know, September 30th of this year, the program expires. If that happens, no new flood policies can be written and no existing policies can be renewed. But we are confident that even though not a lot has happened legislatively in the last few, uh, how do we put it, last few weeks, we'll say, um, since Congress is out on recess, we are confident that Congress will pass a short-term reauthorization uh, that will get the um, program reauthorized for a short amount of time while we work on a much bigger reauthorization. So in a recent letter that we wrote to Congress, and we have been meeting with legislative uh, staff um, over the last few months, we have broken down our recommendations uh, into the word MAP, only it's spelled with two M's, two A's, and two P's. <laughs> so M-M-A-A-P-P, MAP. And this is really, and, and they stand for something, obviously, very important. Mitigation, mapping, affordability, administration, and private participation. There's MAP. So these uh, pieces were not thought of overnight. We've actually been involved knowing that there was a reauthorization coming up in 2017 we started organizing our local groups and organizations to get involved with us back in 2015. So this has been a, a long and ongoing effort. And so we'll start with mitigation and we'll go throughout the different sections. Well, what I'd like to, what I'd like to start off with is kind of a high level overview of what we need to balance um, when, when we look at these different parts. Um, 
the the national flood insurance program as it's no secret that the program is 24 billion dollars in debt and there's you know everybody says there's this reason and that reason and, and another reason it's all of those reasons that the program is in debt the program was never designed to be a true insurance program and, it, and people don't realize that there are actually four parts to the flood program and and personally i think insurance is not even the most important part because the the program is insurance floodplain management mapping and mitigation or flood grants for for buildings and out of those four parts you know i really like to harp on the floodplain management as being the most important and i'll tell you why because it's everyone's heard the statistic that for every dollar spent on mitigation or, or making buildings safer, we get four dollars back in avoided losses. That's a great number, and I think that study's being updated as we speak. But what people don't talk about is the number that's related to building right in the first place. So if we build our buildings correctly in the first place, that would be following the floodplain management and floodplain guidelines. It's estimated that that will save $30 in avoided losses. So with that in mind, you know, what we're looking to do is to make sure that the program uh, continues with the mitigation and mapping activities to enforce better uh, program sustainability, which will in turn mean that the insurance is more affordable and used less. So I hope that makes sense as we go through this and, and talk about it. Um, the other thing I'll say before we talk a little bit about the program is that the program is implemented by private insurance companies. It's called the Write Your Own Program. All the policies are federally backed, but the private insurance companies implement the program. So what we're finding is that the program is getting more and more administrative burdens but not giving funding to fund those administrative burdens to the write your own company so with that in mind as well our we have a comprehensive approach to solving some of these problems and, and we'll actually go through here so we'll start with mitigation so without reading up well you know each section we have a long paragraph and I'll avoid reading those paragraphs. Well, Joe, the are these are, will these be available online? Can I post these on the show notes as well? They are. They are already on the homepage of our website. Is our letter to Congress? Got it. Okay. And Go ahead. That letter out, is outlined each of these sections. So um, basically, our proposals to the mitigation problem in terms of funding for buildings that continue to get losses to fix them. We first must incentivize people to build higher than the base flood elevation. You know, that flood elevation of, of whatever the number is, 10 feet, 12 feet, you know, building higher than that base flood, you know, that number is not incorporating streams that might get dammed up downstream. It's not incorporating uh, any type of beach erosion, coastal infrastructure failures. Uh, it's not incorporating any uh, urban uh, drainage cloggage. So our recommendation is to do things that will incentivize people to go three feet above that base flood number. We also believe that the program, which the, the, pro the program is already driven by credit, by incentives and penalties. You incentivize people to build higher, you credit them, or you incentivize them by build, making their insurance premiums lower. Um, you penalize people who have more losses. So we actually believe that there should be loss-free credits given to those that don't have losses. Um, we also believe that an insured should be able to purchase a higher amount um, of what's called ICC coverage. This is the amount of coverage uh, that somebody will get on um, uh, in addition to their, their loss amount um, up to a certain amount. It's $30,000 right now. $30,000, if you have a total loss, isn't going to be enough to raise your home. 
So we're, we, we believe that there should be more ability to purchase more of this money, which would then mean more premium to the program and more ability for people to build back. Um, and also to use that money for some pre-disaster mitigation. Wouldn't it be great if you could almost borrow against your flood policy to do mitigation ahead of a storm? What a great idea. <laughs> that would be. That would be. So in, in that particular case, would um, – you know, would that be used for something like uh, sandbagging, um, you know, those types of things to keep the water away from the home? Yeah, the mechanism for doing this is um, not thought all the way through. Congress is thinking about doing something similar to this. That's why we included it to enhance Congress, um, Congress's ability to try to, you know, push them. Um, it would be probably more in the lines of doing things like filling in basements, putting flood vents in, um, in, in, in depending on how much you can borrow against the, the, the program, uh, potentially some elevation work as well. Um, so that, that, that would be our thought on, on using ICC for pre-disaster mitigation. Um, so then mapping. So, in mapping, what's crazy is that over 3 million stream miles have not been mapped yet. Now, many of those stream miles are in rural areas that have no residential structures around them, but it's still an issue. You know, we should be able to know what the flood risk is of our entire country, and we don't. So there should be a priority to get into any mapping funding should be prioritized to the areas that have not yet been mapped. Um, we also believe that there's a coalition or, or it's really a committee called TMAC, the Technical Mapping Advisory Council that has been meeting uh, with FEMA for the last three or four years. Um, they are making recommendations for better mapping and we just simply believe that before we go and change all the mapping procedures, that TMAC's recommendations for mapping, which has already um, uh, been, been given to FEMA, they should be implemented. Um, also, uh, we should be able to have a searchable database that will show on a map where claims have actually happened. So FEMA wants to do this. They want to generalize the information and put it in a public searchable database. Um, and, but the mapping, actually putting it on a map will allow us to start to show where those real flood hazard zones are, where there's been true risk. Um, okay, now we move down to affordability. This is the one where I get a lot of pushback, so just get ready. <laughs> so I'm ready. Um, yes. So, mind you, these were not thought of in a bubble. Congress has proposed about 12 different bills out there. Some of these are only to say that doing this is better than what they propose, but not a final solution. For example, premiums $2,500 or more could be considered tax a tax deduction. Now, I've had pushback on this, but the idea that FEMA wants to create a what they call an affordability program, which they are proposing, to basically have an income-based affordability program where there's some sort of deferred premium if you have a lower income is so complicated to keep it within the National Flood Program that I just don't see how we reduce administrative burdens while doing it. So we're trying to do things within the existing frameworks, and, and this is the best we could come up with to eliminate an affordability program that would actually cost the program more in administration by just simply saying that you have a threshold you can write off in taxes. Right. Um, it, it's one of the things that I'm, I struggle with as well, uh, trying to understand because it's, um, it's conflicting, right? We want, it is. We, we want to be able to have the right price for the home of course, we would want to make it affordable, but uh, incentive-wise as well, um, are you putting in the right incentives? Um, if if you you know, let's say there's a particular coastal area that's you know fairly low income, the 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 incentives get 
kind of out of whack if you have a particular area where the premiums are a lot cheaper. Um, and then I, I didn't even think of the administrative stuff, but yeah, how do you, how do you manage that? Now, now there's another, there's a burden, there's a set of thresholds, probably more paperwork that needs to be figured, uh, that needs to be filled out. And then, uh, someone to police the system to make sure that there isn't, uh, you know, that kind of benefit isn't passed on, you know, generation after generation as well. So I, I didn't even think about that. So it, it sounds conflicting and, would be a struggle to try to implement, I would guess. Yeah, it, it would be. And so our concern is what we want to do is basically, like I said, try to work within existing frameworks. The tax framework is already there. Will it be the best solution for everyone? No. But just remember that as the program adds uh, uh, administrative costs, so do policy, you know, that's passed down to the policyholder. So, you know, what do we really want to do? Do we want to increase our, because this is not the only administrative burden being added. There's affordability studies and, you know, study, study, claim studies, all these studies. And it's really just going to get passed down to the policyholder. So that's why we're proposing that. Um, we already mentioned the loss-free credits. You know, your premium actually decreases over years as you have less losses. So this encourages mitigation and it helps affordability. Um, the other thing that we're concerned about is that the bills are proposing an arbitrary cap to premiums. Um, and while we do want to keep premiums affordable, the caps that they're proposing aren't in relation to anything. Right now, they're proposing a $10,000 premium cap for single-family dwellings. I don't know where that number came from. It's <laughs> not really in relation to anything. So what we're doing is... We are saying caps on maximum insurance premiums should apply, first of all, only to single-family dwellings because condo units and build or condo buildings can be insured up to replacement costs with no cap at, at currently. Um, so the only single-family dwellings in condo units and that that cap be tied to a percentage. So we're not really saying what that percentage should be. We're saying maybe it's re replacement costs. So you've got a $200,000 replacement cost. Maybe the cap is 1% of replacement cost. Your premium can't go higher than $2,000. This is just an idea, but it should not be an arbitrary number that's thrown out there. Mm. Um, this is really controversial. We are encouraging that the NFIP debt be forgiven. <laughs> and... Why this is so controversial, obviously, is because that would allow taxpayer dollars to, for the first time, for the actual insurance side of the program, be given to the program. Right now, no taxpayer dollars go into the flood, flood program, only for mapping. There is a there's an authorization that goes to the mapping side of the program every year. But for insurance, there isn't. So we're encouraging this because... Um, basically $400 million a year goes to just servicing that debt. And we really think that that money could be going towards getting rid of the high risk buildings. So by forgiving that debt, we can focus more on the insurance and mitigation and less on the debt. Um, we're also proposing potentially require all structures in the special flood hazard area to carry flood insurance, not just those with mortgages. Um, we do know that there are some homeowner insurance companies that currently say in their underwriting guidelines, if you are in a high hazard zone, that you must have flood insurance. We also know that they're not implementing those. So what we're basically right now, if you're in a flood zone, you have a federally backed mortgage, you have to have a flood insurance policy. We've all heard the study that says 50% of buildings in a flood zone aren't in compliance. Well, that's not true. It's 50% of buildings in a flood zone just don't have a flood policy. That could mean several things. They don't have a federally backed mortgage. The mortgage is paid off. Mm. What we're saying is if you are in a special flood hazard area, you should carry coverage of some sort. Um, we're not exactly sure how that mechanism would work, but we want to propose that. Um, okay, administration, one of my favorite sections. <laughs> Basically... 
all claims under $20,000 should be issued without adjusting. So, you know, right now the technology can be developed in a way where there are images or photos of water in a house or contents or the building that would simply be sent to FEMA and there'd be a minimum payment of $20,000 depending on the loss or maybe something a little bit less than that, um, you know, or anything under 20,000 essentially. Um, this would simplify the claims process, reduce paperwork, reduce administration. Most flood insurance claims are $60,000 and less. So this would really help reduce some of those administrative costs. Um, until administrative costs are lowered, do not increase the available amount of insurance within the program. So we've heard a lot of talk about bringing the residential limits, and we'll focus on those, from 250 that they are right now, 250,000 to 500,000. The problem we have with that is that how do we know those next $250,000 in rates are going to be affordable? And with the administrative burdens that are going to be put on the program and what we believe to be attrition from the program as people leave uh, when the private industry opens up, you know, how do we know that those rates are going to be affordable and people will then be required if they have a federally backed mortgage up to $500,000 to carry that much of insurance. So that's why we put that in there. So um, what, what are your feelings about the private market coming in? You, you Obviously, you know that's uh, an area that I'm very interested in. So, yes. you know, I, it, I had a conversation on LinkedIn today because I posted an article about, uh, I can't remember the source off the top of my head, but it was essentially about cherry picking. I and saw that. It was and so, there, you know, there was a, a back and forth that went on um, in the comment section of that article, and I'll post that on the show notes as well. Um, but the, the, you know, the essential idea is that the private market is going to come in. We already know that there are a lot of properties that are just overpriced. And so the private market can just come in, pull those out, sweep those uh, into onto their books, which is essentially going to leave the NFIP with a lot of very high hazard stuff. So if anything, the price is going to go up just because their risk pool is more extreme. So what are your thoughts about that? That's, that's clearly has either that either has to be a problem or maybe that's a relief because the, you know, if you take enough of the, enough of the pool out, even though you're left with a high risk pool, it's, it's a smaller pool. You know, it's sure. your, 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 your losses are going to be bigger. So I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on uh, overall on privatization? Well, you know, I, I'll just read you our comments, which is, this is our last section in, in the letter, which is on private participation. We believe, um, first of all, we, we, there, there's, what I like to say is that, you know, in my discussion with industry experts, you know, you and others, you know, there is um, in, in general understanding that, you know, what what Congress wants to do is kind of force the private market in all over the place, you know, throughout the country uh, this year with the reauthorization. Um, get the federal program out of the business and, and move on. Well, that's never going to happen. And the other thing that's not going to happen right away is the involvement that Congress may want or expect. You, know, you and I know very well that this will be a 10 to 15 year back and forth. You know, we'll have years where the market is soft like it is now and there's a lot of companies coming in. Then we'll have a hurricane or two or three or 10. And then the market will get hard and, and everyone will back back off. Um, and, and we'll be right back where we started uh, about three or four years ago. So I'm not opposed to the private market at all. I think from a agent standpoint and a consumer standpoint, which are my two major roles, um, that the consumer choice is extremely important. I caution, though, that we may be rushing into this with our eyes wide closed. So... With that in mind, you know, we, we, I don't know if you want to kind of respond to that because I'm not, 
saying the private market's bad. I'm, I'm saying that we just, I think, need to be more careful about it than we are being. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I think there would be ebbs and flows. I mean, it, it already happens now in the wind market. Uh, Florida feels the brunt of that. Every time there's a major hurricane, you'll have a lot of carriers that decide, okay, that's enough. Uh, reinsurance prices go up, so on and so forth. And, you know, we, we start to get into a cycle. Um, I, I, one, of the, one of the comments I made in, in the LinkedIn area, in the LinkedIn article in the comment section was, I think the best overall solution long-term is to get flood as a named peril and to just have it include, I mean, it's the best overall because everybody will have coverage. You'll have geographic diversification. Um, it, 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 as a monoline coverage, it's always going to be volatile. And so for me, if I'm connecting the dots, if, if that's my end goal and I start to work backwards at some point, the private market has to step in and just dip their toe in um, we could use, we could use a, a ton of flood analogies here, dip their toe in the water. Uh, they could, you know, uh, jump in, uh, wait till the, wait till the dam breaks. You know, there's, there's at some point they have to get exposure and feel comfortable with it. Uh, yes. so for me, for me, what, what I'm most interested in is how do we get flood as a named peril? How do we get it? So it's just, you buy a homeowner's policy, flood is in there. And it, that absolutely cannot happen overnight. That is a very, very long-term process. So I agree with you with the 10 to 15-year timeline. I would like to see privatization happen soon um, just because I think there are already private actors in the market now. I would like yeah. to give make more incentive for for more to come in. There's a lot of capital sitting on the sideline, so that that I'm not really rebutting you. I, I think we're on the same page. I just think that uh, there's there's an opportunity here if we do it right, and if we can. And, and I think the biggest part is the the federal mortgage uh, requirement. If we can just get FEMA. Uh, not FEMA, but uh, Fannie and Freddie to accept private paper as a, a um, you know, to, to satisfy the requirement of the of the mor federal mortgage, then I think that will do a lot by itself just to get more more players to come in the market. So that that's that's my stance. Yeah, you know, this all started for those that don't know in 1968 because all the private carriers left. Well, what's happened in, from 1968, and really, as you know, in the last only two or three years, is technology has allowed us to finally start to really model flood. And that's not something that has been able to be done in the past. Yeah. So it's a different environment. It'll be a different time. But just remember what happened during the Katrina. You know, during Katrina, while Florida was not directly hit like New Orleans was, there was a total vacate of homeowner companies. Homeowner companies unloaded into the state pool and just now the state pool is finally unloading back to the homeowner companies. And we have a lot of homeowner startups that have terrible ratings that are basically taking on um, these, these high-risk uh, homeowner policies without flood involved. Then you add flood and you've got a whole mess of issues. So again, we've just got to be careful, especially before any of the legislative language is passed that allows grandfathering to be carried over from the national program. And at the end of the day, you know, the NFIP is going from being the marketplace to being part of a marketplace where in the future, 10, 15 years, you'll line up private option A, private option B, and the NFIP, and all three will be relatively affordable, comparable, pluses and minuses. But I think the one thing the federal program will always have is just that, a federal backing to it. It's very much like the loan and lending industry. When you buy a loan, you want that federal backing versus maybe a private loan. But you'll take the private loan, 
but they most mostly won't go to certain risks, but the federal backing will go to all the risks. That's going to be the same with the NFIP. That's yeah, I, why I, I, I that's I, why I Sorry, Joe. Go ahead. That? go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I, I was just going to mention that that's why I laugh when I see these uh, opinion columns and uh, articles that say, you know, the NFIP is bad and we shouldn't reauthorize it and it's good for now, but eventually we'll be gone. Anything that is federally backed will not go away. Yeah. So that's my take. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm, I am a private market person, but uh, to whoever wants to listen, what I say is the NFIP has done exactly what it was set out to do. Uh, a you know starting from 1978, a dollar of premium has paid 98 cents in claims. So that 24 billion dollar number is something else. You know the NFIP was never meant to run as an insurance company. Um, so I think just with just a little bit of support, it could have run effectively. I think, um, but but that's a, that's another story. I think. The NFIP, the correct role, in my opinion, is for the NFIP to behave in one of two ways. One is that it behaves like a fair plan that you see, uh, like in Massachusetts and many states across the country, where it becomes the insurer of last resort. So with a healthy market, uh, should a market get soft or uh, I'm sorry, should a market get hard or should... Uh, carriers leave, uh, you know, capacity dry up. There's still that, uh, you know, insurer of last resort that you can go to. Or alternatively, and I think your solution kind of goes in this direction, um, the NFIP could act like a, a reinsurer, basically encouraging the market to behave in a certain way and, and like the terrorism market, sit on top of it and say, uh, we would like you to uh, form this market, but should things go awry, we will provide inexpensive reinsurance coverage for you um, should that catastrophe occur. So I think it, one of those two uh, market formulations, I think, is the the probably the way that NFIP should behave in 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 my opinion. Um, I I was wondering, you know, what's what's your opinion on that? I think that's a good that's a good way to look at it. You know, I I really struggle sometimes to see, you know, twenty to thirty years out. You know, it's easy to see the ten to fifteen. Um, the market is going to change; it's already changing. What I think the biggest struggle the NFIP is going to have, though, is that private markets can do whatever they want in terms of evolving to the risk. NFIP has to go through the rulemaking process. You know, right now, most private carriers, not all of them, but most of them, don't use an elevation certificate. That's been going on for years. The NFIP now has hired a consultant to get them to the same place. But they estimate it will take them six years to get there. So while the markets will eventually kind of work their way through this change, you know, the NFIP is going to take so much longer to get there that I'm concerned on its involvement compared to where everything else will be. You know, mm -hmm. I think ideally the NFIP will act as a product that you can add different parts to, you can purchase different coverages, and the peril of flood will be covered in many different ways based on what you want in that policy. That's what the current FIMA administration wants to do. But, you know, the um, private market's going to get there and already is in a lot of cases a lot faster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think it, that's why the, the reinsurance potential of the NFIP is very appealing to me because then they don't have to get involved in rating, Joe. They don't have to get involved in a lot of the minutia of a day-to-day -day insurer, you know, which forms are we going to use? How do we implement it? Um, it, well, it frees them from that burden. They only have to make one giant decision. What's the portfolio going to look like from all of the carriers that are submitting to it? And how do we charge those carriers? You know, as a nation, we are going to pay for our flood losses in one of two ways. 
We're either going to pay through large federal appropriations like we did during Sandy and Katrina, or we're going to pay through the National Flood Insurance Program's different parts. So we can choose as a nation which way we're going to do this. I, as, a, as like you, would rather do it in a way that involves an insurance program versus every, you know, a large authorization that takes away from our federal spending. So to your point, whether it's a reinsurance program, whether it's a true insurance program, the NFIP needs to exist to cover our nation's flood losses. And don't forget, to me, the most important part of the program that is another reason that the program can't go away is its true benefit of protecting our vulnerable areas by enforcing compliance with the building of buildings. So, you know, many of the different things that are involved with the NFIP are lost on a lot of people, but we need to remember those different parts that are involved uh, because that will be how we build our country around flood losses. Sure. So on that point, before we move on to the final two pieces of, of this show, um, homes that have multiple claims. So you brought up before the, the whole mitigation aspect and then potentially uh, freeing up the, uh, the debt burden of the NFIP to, uh, to go after properties um, that are in like super high severe zones. That's not easy though, is it? Um, no. What, uh, <laughs> if you can just spend a, just a couple minutes and kind of go through that, because to me, I, I see this as two particular air, two particular problems. One is we've built, we've already built so much in flood zones. I, you know, Sacramento is one that comes in where you have, you know, nearly a million people that are protected by levees where a disaster could occur. You know, we, we could have, you know, a, a Katrina or a Sandy like event. So I, I keep saying, why, why are we still building in flood zones? Why is that still happening and still allowed to occur? And for those homes that that continuously flood over and over again, how can we get rid of those so we don't have to keep paying for those claims? Sure. I'll take the first part of that question first. Um, <clears throat> the you know building standards change as the flood maps change. The higher the base flood elevation, the higher the buildings have to be built. Um, there's been a lot of controversy on whether people think the NFIP rather than, you know, insuring against loss has encouraged people to build in high risk zones. Um, I would, I would argue that while people have built in high risk zones um, in certain places um, that the losses, it, and, I, and I don't know the number, but it would be interesting to look what the losses on those buildings are versus the losses of buildings that either weren't built to compliance, were built before flood maps were around, or that were improperly, you know, something was improperly done after the fact. And what that looks like compared to what was actually done um, to regulations and standards. You know, part of one of the bills that was proposed in Congress basically said that all new, can, this has since been struck, all new buildings in high hazard zones cannot get national flood insurance. You have to go to the private market. Now, what that essentially done is taken the absolute best buildings, since they were built new and raised, and thrown them away to the private market, which would eat that up, in, in really. We would. So, so what I would say is, whether it's encouraged, discouraged, or well-insured, our flood plains, our flood zones, what I would say is we really need to look at the buildings that have sustained the losses in those zones to, before we start making assumptions about the program. And that ties into your second question. You know, there's about 130,000 buildings or so that are these, what we will call problem buildings. They, they, they're either severe repetitive losses or they're repetitive losses. 
so they've 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 received a lot of claims from the program you know what i would say about those buildings is okay now we have a target target of buildings that we need to to fix we and, and potentially not even buildings entire areas that may be flood prone because a community either has or hasn't done certain things um so what i would say about that is it's estimated that it will cost you know billions and billions of dollars to either buy out those buildings mitigate those buildings or some some form of mitigation or buyouts um i think we can do it it's going to be a 100 year problem it's not going away with or without the flood program it is not going away and we need to prioritize certain buildings obviously um, but we also need to increase the amount of spending that the program gives to communities to, to do grants to elevate and, you know, again I go back to how do we want to pay for this people are, are are in these buildings they are part of our communities we're not going to abandon them um, or we are but we're going to give somebody a fair you know assessment to do that um, and, and we're going to pay for this out of the flood program or out of a large re you know, authorization through our tax money every time there's a disaster. So the question really goes back to, you know, if we were to authorize a larger amount of money, maybe a billion dollars a year to go strictly to elevating or acquiring buildings in a flood zone, um, I think you would see the problem go away fairly fast. But it needs to be a priority. Of not just the flood program but Congress because they're the ones that have the ability to authorize that money to go towards that and, and again I, I keep going back to they're either going to authorize the money through the program or we're going to authorize the money after large disasters well I think I think you uh, titled the ep this episode of uh, profiles and risk I'm gonna call it it's a hundred year problem because <laughs> it's, uh, it's very true. I, I, I think with time, we, will, we will resolve a lot of this. Unfortunately, it's more than a Band-Aid, I guess, that we have to rip off. That, that's right. And, and, it, and it is, you know, it's actually interesting. For a while on our board of directors of the coalition, um, we had a, a former uh, FEMA branch chief um, who worked in hazard mitigation at FEMA Region 1. Um, and he was on our board for about two years. In that time, you know, we learned a lot from his perspective of risk, which I still carry a lot of that with me today. Um, well, something that he said at one point really kind of stirred my, my thought. You know, when we were talking about a lot of the flood-prone areas, you know, the, the idea would be to either elevate or get rid of all the buildings in every flood zone across the entire country. Um, which is obviously a much bigger task than simply fixing those areas that are problems. Um, you know, this really is a is a five to six hundred year problem, not just a one. It's a it's a one hundred year problem to figure out how we're going to do this and then actually do it. But to get to the ideal world where everything is removed or elevated in our special flood hazard areas. It really is a, a five to six hundred year problem because you're killing me, Joe. <laughs> That's so depressing. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I mean, think, when you think about it, think about the deeds, about the money, about the people, about the sure. community. No, I know, I know. It, so we can start it, but you know, what do they say about planting a tree? Best time to do it was twenty years ago. When's the next best time to do it today? Right. So right. we need to start doing that with our high-risk buildings and we will start to see a country that is more resilient and we will start to see a program that is extremely sustainable this now we're only talking federally there's a lot of talk and, and you're more versed in it than me about getting the private industries just as vested in mitigation as the federal government well that's going to be a topic for another show um let I want to make sure I get you on to talk about that. I, I was actually thinking it might be interesting to get uh, you know, multiple people in, in a forum 
maybe with like Ed Thomas of the uh, National Hazards Mitigation Association, something, you know, an event like that where we can actually talk about different ways to get public and private to work together uh, to mitigate. Because there are some ideas. I I have some of my own. I I think there is a way for the, the private industry to get involved and actually do it profitably but um we won't we won't get into that too much so be, be, um joe before we jump into a quick game of rank the risk i wanted okay. to give you an opportunity to talk about your consulting practice um you're you know you're obviously a flood nerd like i am so um when you're when you're not working for a company and you're not working for a, you know a public organization uh, you actually do stuff on your own as well. Uh, what do you do, and um, and how would people reach you? Sure. Well, you know, I, I I spend most of my time between the coalition and my time at at Rogers and Gray. Obviously, I have been blessed to have formed a partnership with Lisa Sherrard um, down in the uh, Carolinas um, in a company that we call Simply Flood. Um, Lisa is somebody who has 30 years experience in doing this. I'm a baby compared to her in her experience. Um, and we do insurance, but most importantly to me, um, we take on really complicated consulting projects and I'm dealing with one right now. Um, for example, where there's somebody that has two additions, um, one touches an A zone, one touches a V zone. There's an in-ground pool that's going to be indoors. Um, part of the buildings at a lower elevation, really kind of in depth. Um, you know, these are the types of things that we work on. Um, and, and we've, we're, we've actually, you know, just starting to embark on some of these bigger projects. Um, and that's, that's just another thing that, that I'm involved in. Um, but I'll tell you that, um, right now the Marshfield Coastal Coalition with everything we have going on and we have subcommittees, uh, we have a membership commi- subcommittee and we have a CRS subcommittee. Um, those subcommittees are keeping me quite busy, to say the least. We're actually, like I mentioned before, we can't talk about it yet. It's all secret. But we're developing some proprietary products, redoing our website, developing a membership program, uh, and potentially changing our name. And I wasn't going to say anything, but that's kind of a, a, a preview of what might be to come. Um, and also expanding our board of directors and something that I know that you, you've talked to me about and you'll find really cool that we, we've just started to work on next month, actually, is something called the Advisory Council. This will be a, a council or board of nationally recognized experts. Um, and this board, we've already got about... Um, about four or five interested individuals. Um, This board uh, will actually uh, advise the uh, coalition's board of directors on complicated issues, uh, national events and national ongoings. Um, And this will be a nationally recognized board. It's it's very high level experts that are looking to join. Um, So if you couldn't tell, it's, it's keeping us quite busy and, I imagine this time next year, um, we will be looking at a coalition that operates more like a Fortune 500 company yeah, really? than a, a nonprofit, I almost guarantee you. Yeah, well, you, you have your hands full. I, and, and I do, I salute you for uh, tackling a very big problem in the professional way that you're doing it. And we will have you on again. So I want to uh, follow through with this and give you and the Marshfield Coastal Coalition or whatever name uh, you end up. Uh, you, you could name it the Duxbury Coastal Co- Coalition, but I think there's a there's a rivalry there. So maybe it won't be Duxbury, but whatever it is, um, we'll, we'll get you back on. And, and let's see if we can do something um, in an event format where we, we can really – open up and dissect mitigation because it's a topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart. So you know, uh, we- you're giving me many ideas. I, I actually, through our power, through the coalition, we actually could set up a live panel if we could get enough people down into a room. Let's do that. That'd be great. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, one quick game. Sure. Not sure if you hear this. 
<laughs> a little uh, Jeopardy music. So this is, Joe, this is a game we call uh, Rank the Risk, where I ask the guest a question uh, in their honor on the topic that they're, that they're experts in. Um, but okay. the, the game is really to just uh, throw out a nugget of insight. Um, I enjoy doing the research on it. So I'm learning something. Uh, usually the uh, guest uh, learns something and, of course, the audience gets some insight. So I have a flood-related question for you, and it has to do with uh, cities, and it has to do with uh, the potential of American cities to be flooded. So I went through a list of 20 international cities and pulled out four from the United States, and I want you, Joe, to rank these four American cities by highest uh, probability of both frequency and severity, the, the cities that are going to have the most problems with flooding uh, going forward. And, okay, uh, and so in a scrambled order, the four American cities are New Orleans, New York, Miami, and our beloved Boston. So out of those four cities, Joe, uh, I, I will put the link on the show notes. This is from Live Science. Uh, which of these cities did Live Science rank as the the most uh, uh, the American city that's going to face the biggest consequences of flooding going forward? Okay, name them again for me. New Orleans, New York, Miami, and Boston. Okay, so I'm going to rank it. Miami, New Orleans, New York, and Boston. It's very good. Very close. Very okay. close. Uh, Miami is number one. Miami okay. is expected to have the biggest consequences dealing with, uh, you know, just traditional flooding, but, you know, consequences dealing with climate change. Then uh, New York. Ah, okay. Then New Orleans, and then uh, Boston was the fourth. Boston would actually surprise me. It's fourth on this list, but it's in the top 20 globally. Oh, uh, uh, okay. It surprised me a bit. I didn't expect to see it. That's why I, I threw it in there. Um, it, and, but I think the other three are well known to have uh, major potential flood problems. So sure. uh, there we go. I'll throw that up on the show notes. So – Joe Rossi, you've been a good sport coming on to Profiles and Risk. You are uh, a flood nerd uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'm going to share this with uh, other flood nerds and perhaps beyond just getting everybody in a mitigation panel, perhaps we can get a panel of flood nerds together to, to talk about, uh, you know, flood, flood insurance and, and the whole marketplace that deal we're dealing with. So, uh, for the listeners, my guest this week has been Joe Rossi, flood specialist, agent uh, at Rogers and Gray. Everyone calls him the flood man. Joe, thank you so much for being on Profiles and Risk. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. 